0: Let me ask you uh, to uh, take, take a minute and pray with me because I'm, I'm feeling something. Michael and I talked um, earlier this week about this song, God of the City, and what God might be up to here in the week before Easter and the responsibility that we have as a church to really be seeking God's heart about what He's up to in preparing people to potentially enter into his kingdom. And we as a church have a huge responsibility that God would be able to do what he wants to do is somehow symbiotic with our prayer life. So lest we underestimate what God is up to in what we call Holy Week, this week leading up to Easter and the potential to really celebrate it fully, there may very well be people here in this church and in other churches around this city next week Sunday who will be celebrating their very first Easter as believers in Jesus Christ. There will be those coming into church who are not believers in Jesus Christ. And we have a responsibility as kingdom people, to say, God, do your work and allow us to play a role in that. So here's what I want to ask you to do. I want to ask you to pray with me for the other churches in our city, for campus ministries, Campus Crusade for Christ, Inner Varsity, Navigators. Let's pray that God can have his way. So you do that with me right now before we step into any teaching. Let's do that. Father, we come from this moment of worshiping you and declaring a truth that you are the God of the city. And yet, here we sit in this room not entirely sure what that means. Yes, we do believe that you reign and you rule and you are sovereign over the universe. But to declare that you're God of the city in the way that we would like to see happen, we're not really sure that other people recognize that at all. So Father, we're men and women who come before you this morning with open hearts and a a willing attitude that you would indeed not be hindered. So right now, Father, we lift up to you South Baptist Church. We lift up to you the teaching ministry of Don Denius. God, I lift up to you Marvin Williams over at Trinity. Noel and Steve over at Riverview. Kevin at River Terrace, or URC. God, you can do your work at Lighthouse Church in Williamston. You can do your work wherever hearts are open to you. And we especially ask for that here at New Hope. Father, that we would be men and women who would be bold witnesses on your behalf. And that we would use this week to further and to advance your kingdom. So Father, I lift up to you the campus ministries, both at LCC and at at Michigan State University. I believe, Father, in my heart that hearts will be tender towards you this week and that your spirit will bring conviction upon people. And whether or not they respond to that, we don't know. But Father... We ask that you allow us to play a role in that. Allow us to be willing to be reaching out to individuals who come in the doors of this church, people that we come in contact with, people who we might work with, certainly those whom we call family, that we, we would be a bold witness about what this week really means. So, Father, as we step into this time right now this morning in learning about truth, We ask that you would apply it to our hearts in such a way that we can take this truth out of this room and share it with those who are far from you. Especially, Father, those who are very skeptical. God, we ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. I personally can identify with skeptics. I are one. I am a skeptic. I'm skeptical about the real estate value of my home. I'm skeptical about whether or not the Detroit Lions can ever bring home a winning season. I'm skeptical about whether or not my 401k will have enough in it in 30 years when I retire at age 65. (laughs) Some of you are skeptical about what I just said. Do I not look 35? We live among a nation of people who are skeptical. Because of the failure of businesses and governments and individuals and family members to do what they say they will do, we become skeptical. Especially about religious things. That is a benchmark of skeptical behavior, as you'll see this morning. Nothing produces a skeptic faster than the claims of Christianity. In order to help you understand where we're going this morning, I wanna show you some uh, graphics of some research I've done over the last few weeks. These are percentage statistics, so hopefully it won't bore you to death. There's only three slides, but it will show you a picture, a glimpse, of where our nation is at as a whole, regarding things of the claims of Christ. So let's look first at this first slide. This comes from a Pew Forum on Religious and Public Life. And this was published in the year 2009, last year. Now at first it looks really good. 5% of Americans say they do not believe in God. That's not the good part I'm talking about, okay? Atheist. 8% 8% of Americans are undecided, but 87% of Americans claim to believe in God. That's pretty promising, isn't it? That gives you great hope. We don't have a nation of atheists, we have a nation of people who say they believe in God. Or the survey went on to say they actually believe in a spiritual being in control of the universe. 87%. Pretty remarkable. Look at the next slide. 76% of Americans claim to be Christian. 6% would go under what is known as the Christian category in surveys. They would be what we would call other because they're Mormons or Jehovah's Witness. And the reason that they're other is they deny Jesus Christ. But yet they fall under the category of Christian. They call themselves Christian. 4% are non-Christian religious combined, meaning Jews, Muslim, Buddhist, Hindu. You could go on, it's a fairly long list. 14% do not follow any organized religion. But when I saw that number, 76% of Americans claim to be Christian, I thought, wow, that's still pretty remarkable in 2010. Until you drill down. So let's drill down just a little bit and see what that really means. Next slide, 78% of Americans believe the Bible is either the literal word of God or the inspired word of God. Not one, not both, one or the other. So 78% of Americans believe the Bible is literally the word of God and you should take it literally or they believe it's the inspired word of God. Now look at the last slide with me. 70% of Americans with religious affiliation say there are many paths that lead to eternal life. Do we live among a confused people or what? They say this is the word of God, yet the word of God said there's only one way to him through Jesus Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life." Yet 70% of Americans say there are many paths that lead to eternal life. How do they actually become skeptics? How do we have such a high percentage of believers in Christ and such a high percentage of people who don't really believe his word? How does that happen? Does that not say that they are skeptical about the claims of Christ in the Word of God? That's exactly what it says. So I've come to these two conclusions. Here they are. Either they're not educated in the things of God, and so they make up answers as they go along, or they don't really believe what they say they really believe, tagline, is really real. I think the second one is the greater category. They don't really believe. What they say they really believe is really real. So let me show you the definition of a skeptic according to Webster's Dictionary. A person who questions the validity or authenticity of something purporting to be factual. I love number two. A person who doubts the truth of religion, especially Christianity, or of important elements of it. This is Webster's Dictionary. Why did they not say, especially Buddhism, or especially Islam, or especially Hinduism? Webster singles out Christianity and says, especially Christianity, because it is the only one that claims to give you salvation through the sacrificial death of one, the Son of God that claim can be made by no other. And especially Christianity causes people to be skeptical. How do people become spiritual skeptics? That's the framework of the question this morning as we look at this text in Mark chapter nine. How do people become spiritual skeptics? Especially surrounding Jesus Christ. How in the world does that happen? And it's not new. We see spiritual skeptics all the way through Scripture. If I gave you a three-by-five card this morning and asked you to make a list of people that you see in the Scriptures who are spiritual skeptics, you might come up with a list similar to mine. The first one I'd put on there, Moses. He was a huge skeptic. When God came to him and talked to him and said, Moses, this is what I want you to do. He said, are you kidding me? No one's going to believe that. Do you remember how skeptical he was? See there's believers in God who are skeptics. Skeptic about what God is up to. The next one I'd put on that list, I'd put Jonah on that list. Skeptical about what God is up to. You're gonna do that? I'm not sure I wanna play a role in that. Another one I'd put on that list, I'd put Nicodemus on that list. The guy who came to Jesus at night, the lawyer who visited him after dark so no one would know because he didn't really understand what god was up to let me give you a glimpse of where we're going to be headed next week i want to read this text to you this comes from john this is the skeptic of skeptics that we think of when we think of skepticism this comes from john chapter 20 verse 24 but thomas one of the 12 called didymus was not with them when jesus came So the other disciples were saying to him, we have seen the Lord, but he said to them, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Skepticism 101. This word believe that we use so freely has a specific definition by Jesus. Look at the definition for the word believe up on the screen. you-o. Pist-u-o. Pist-u-o. That's how it's pronounced. Here's the definition for it. To have faith in or with respect to a person by implication to entrust especially one's spiritual well-being to Christ to put your trust with. See, it's way bigger than just sticking a bag of microwave popcorn in the microwave and waiting three minutes and knowing that it's going to transform from seeds into popcorn and eating it. That's not the kind of belief we're talking about. We're talking about your eternal destiny to put your faith in Christ, to believe he has the power to give you salvation, to rescue you. That's the kind of belief we're talking about. So what produces A spiritual skeptic. To make people go, time out. That just sounds so preposterous. I can't possibly accept it. I enter into Mark chapter 9 with this premise. You and I play a role in producing skeptics. You and I as believers in Christ actually play a role in producing skeptics. And I'm going to show you why. Turn in your Bibles, if you happen to have them with you this morning, to Mark chapter 9 and verse 14. If you don't have a Bible with you, you're going to find them in the pew racks in front of you. And, and if you're new to New Hope, first of all, welcome. Thrilled that you're here. Those Bibles that are in the pew racks in front of you are there for your benefit. And if you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to take one with you this morning when you leave. It's there so that you can have your own copy of God's Word. Mark chapter 9, verse 14, you'll see it up on the screen as well. As we follow along, and I want to kind of set up the context for you of precisely what's happening here. Jesus, up till this point, um, the night before this particular story takes place, was on a mountain called what we call today the Mountain of Transfiguration. And he took up there with him Peter, James, and John. And as they were up on the mountain, apparently during nighttime, they experienced or witnessed the transfiguration of Jesus. They saw him in his glory. So that means if the three were up on the mountain with Jesus, they left the other nine disciples down at the bottom, didn't they? Because they weren't allowed to go up there with him. So during the time that Jesus is away, the morning of the next day, a man comes with a sick son to the nine disciples and asked them to do something very specific look with me at mark chapter 9 and verse 14 when they came back to the disciples meaning jesus and the three came back to the other nine when they came back to the disciples they saw a large crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them the nine disciples are completely engaged in a debate And it says that there's a megas crowd, huge crowd gathered around them. Apparently people believed that Jesus was there. They didn't know that he'd taken off and gone up onto the mountain with the other three. And so this big gathering is there and the nine are there and Jesus walks in and he sees the lawyers, the scribes, the experts in the law having this fight, literally an argument, a screaming match with the nine disciples, why? because they can't carry out what they'd been assigned to do. They'd been given a specific responsibility. The word that's used here is suze etso, and it means a vigorous debate, yelling back and forth at each other, trying to make their point. No doubt, I think what's going on here is the disciples are trying to defend Jesus' character and honor, because they're his Talmudin, they're his students, he's the rabbi, and they couldn't carry out the assignment that they have been given, And so that reflects back on the rabbi. And so not only are they trying to defend themselves, they're trying to defend their master. And the nine are trying to make the best defense that they can while this huge crowd is watching. Now, very interestingly, lawyers rarely left the area around Jerusalem. It's where they sat in council in Jerusalem. They never went way to the north. And the very fact that they're at the northern part of Galilee means that they're investigating Jesus. They're only there for one reason. They want to watch and see, is he doing anything outside the realm of what the law allows? So they're investigating him. So verse 15 says this. Immediately when the entire crowd saw him, they were amazed and began running up to greet him. And he asked them, what are you discussing with them? They're amazed, utterly shocked. Why are they shocked? Because no one's expecting Jesus to show up. Once they arrive and they see that he's not there and they start picking on the nine, they think, he's gone for a while. And they're shocked that all of a sudden he's there. And he says, what are you discussing with them? Now who's the them that he's talking to? Let me lay the picture out for you again. Who's there? You've got the crowd, the big crowd who's utterly amazed, and they're watching all this debate take place. And then you've got the disciples, the nine, and I think they're really glad Jesus showed up at this moment. I'm thinking this is kind of like the schoolyard where you've got the bullies picking on the children that are weaklings in the schoolyard, and all of a sudden the captain of the football team walks in and happens to be the older brother of one of the little kids. They're feeling some sense of relief. And I think at this moment the scribes are going, Oh, great, Jesus is here, wonderful. Because he's coming in to confront them head on. Now, the disciples, being glad to have him show up, probably at the same time, are embarrassed. Now, he asked them, Scripture says, the them is the scribes. He's asking the scribes, what are you discussing with my disciples? a confrontation, Jesus is willing to take them head on and pick it right up where they left off. He's going to enter into the debate, but his question, his inquiry, brings about a response from someone else in the crowd. Neither the disciples nor the scribes answer him. Look at verse 17. And one of the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought you my son possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground And he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. I told your disciples to cast it out. And they could not do it. Already, this man who came expecting something from Jesus has been impacted by the argument. He came with a set of expectations. And they couldn't do what was expected of them and he's been impacted by what's going on. Now, Matthew gives us some insight. Matthew tells this story as well as Luke, and Matthew says that this man greatly respected Jesus. He actually calls him kurios, and bows before him. It says that he's kneeling before Jesus. And then he uses a very specific phrase. He says, teacher, which is didaskalos. Didaskalos means doctor, PhD, one who's a professor, very highly revered in society. So he's not disrespecting Jesus, he's got great respect for him and he's giving him these titles and he's saying, I brought you my son. Matthew and Luke give us some insight into this. Look with me up on the screen at Luke nine thirty-eight and Matthew 17, 14. He says, for he is my only boy and falling on his knees before him. You understand why the father is pleading His heart is breaking for his son. His heart is just crushed by what he's watched in the life of this child and what he sees going on. What a picture. This man with his only beloved son standing face to face with the son of God and saying, your disciples couldn't do this. He's possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. Let's investigate that just for a minute. The boy has no capacity to speak. We'll find out later that he can't hear also. He's deaf. But look at the description that takes place, and it's very graphic. Description is so graphic, you'd look at it and say, this looks like severe epilepsy. It looks like this boy is cont- consumed with epilepsy. It says he slams him to the ground, and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. I've done quite a bit of research on epilepsy, and I have a pretty good understanding of it. In the description that takes place here, when it says he foams at his mouth, and in the King James Version actually says it tears him, meaning it bruises him. He's been thrown down so many times violently. He's just covered with bruises. But the father doesn't stop there. It says he grinds his teeth. It's an ancient word phrase that's used for shrilling, a gnatching, ah, ah. And it's used in scripture talking about hell. There's a a biting that takes place and he's grinding his teeth so much with such ferocity that he's actually foaming at the mouth. Powerful description, isn't it? And the last thing he says is, He stiffens out, master. Didaskalos. After this seizure overcomes him, his body goes like a board and stiffen out is always followed by collapse, meaning he becomes limp, utterly devastated and exhausted. He can't speak. He can't hear. He's a deaf mute. And he thrashes and he grinds And he screams. And this is his life. This is what he lives with every single day. But he says this at the end. They were not able to do it. They could not do it. Meaning this. They could exert no power. The word is dunamis. Meaning explosive. That's what scripture uses for dynamite. There's no power associated with them. They have no capacity to resist. They can't stop the force. Does that not seem strange to you? If you know anything about Jesus' relationship with the disciples, you know specifically that he gave them authority over unclean spirits. As a matter of fact, we'll just go back and look at the book of Matthew very quickly. Matthew 10:1 up on the screen. He, Jesus, gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. So they've been given the power to do that, haven't they? As a matter of fact, up till now, they've been successful. Mark chapter six says that they went out on a mission and they were casting out unclean spirits. But here, they can't do it. They had the power. They had the promise. But what's missing? They failed to appropriate the power. It's available to them, but they didn't appropriate it. They didn't take what had been given to them. And this inability of the disciples is not an inability to understand God's word. And don't be confused by that. They understand God's word. These are men who studied God's word and memorized it. They understand it. They failed to appropriate the power associated with it. They couldn't back up what they said they believed. There's an inability to act. And so, it produces a skeptic. One who's beginning to question. You'll see how this unfolds here. Verse 19, And he answered them and said, O unbelieving generation, How long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. You generation of skeptics. That's what the word is here. You generation of unbelievers. Skeptics. Look with me up on the screen at the definition for unbelievers. This is the way Jesus used it. Think of the first word we use, pistios, meaning believers, those who put their trust in. Here is apistios, Disbelieving, believeth not, faithless, unbeliever. Now notice what's in the brackets in parentheses. I see the word active. Active unbelief. Ongoing disbelief in the power of God. That's what they're guilty of. You unbelievers, you're actively disbelieving in me. You don't get many glimpses in Scripture into the heart of Jesus like this, as you do here, in which you see him utterly frustrated, just downright ticked off, so much so that he calls them a pistios. pistios believers, a, meaning a counter accent, a pistios, you're the opposite of believers. You're skeptics. You're showing no faith. So look what he says actually in Luke 9 up on the screen. Luke 9, 41. You unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. See, Luke adds the word perverse as part of the conversation. Perverse doesn't mean here what it meant to them there. What it means to us today is different than what it meant there. Let me show you exactly what it means. Diastropheo to distort, misinterpret, or morally to corrupt. And this is how this word is used, and Jesus was really familiar with it because he's a woodworker. So if you're a woodworker and you've got a project in front of you, and in his time, carving or shaping wood, if you messed up the project, it's called a diastropheo. It's where the word disaster comes from. Diastropheo means to distort or twist. And having been a carpenter in my past doing some cabinet making, I understand, I've had projects that I've totally messed it up and then walk away and go, oh, screwed that one up. That's what Jesus is saying. You've distorted it. You've misunderstood. And so Diastrophio, you've misunderstood who I am and what I am doing. You perverted generation. You misunderstand. No wonder he has this sense of frustration with them No wonder he's just saying, how long do I have to endure this? I see just total disappointment on the part of Jesus here. Verse 20, they brought the boy to him. When he saw him, immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion. And falling to the ground, he began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. When he saw him. Now, if there's been any question in your mind, just in case you're thinking, this is just epilepsy taking place here, it's clarified for us in the book of Luke. Look up on the screen at Luke 9:42. While he was still approaching, the demon slammed him to the ground. Very specific, isn't it? This young man is demon-possessed. And along with demon possession, he has these physical attributes of epilepsy. And this demon is using this to his power, to his advantage. And the demon slams him to the ground. Add to all the incredible complications. You've got this massive crowd watching this. This father who's already been disappointed and turning towards skepticism about what Jesus can do. The scribes arguing with the followers. And now you add to it spiritual warfare. And Jesus is about to go head-to-head with a demon, one who contests Jesus' authority. And so here's what he does. He throws him to the ground. You know the demon knew whose presence he was in. This fallen angel at one time stood in the realms of heaven. You've discovered that in the book of Revelation as we've studied. These angels before the fall stood before Jesus as king of kings. And they certainly recognize who he is on earth. We see that all the way through Scripture. And he understands who he's up against. And so he throws this child to the ground. Because he knows his rule over this child's life, it's soon going to be ended. So he makes one last final attempt. Verse 21, And he asked his father, Jesus does this, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood It has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Jesus asked specifically the length of the history of this case. What does that do? That takes away any doubt at all that this is a temporary illness. It's been going on since childhood. Since he was a little boy, this has been going on. And he's often thrown where? Into the fire and into the water. There are open pools in the Middle East, open pools of water, open fire pits. That's how people cook their meals. So with these open pools of water and open fire pits, often this boy has been falling into the fire. And he's got burn scars. And he's been almost drowned several times. So you add to everything else going on in this young man's life. He's falling into fire and water. Can you help us? Splagnidzomahi is the word that's used, and this is how it's pictured in Scripture. When someone says, take pity on me, it comes from the gut. Splagnidzomahi. Pity. It hurts. It's painful. That's the cry of this father's heart. What a hardship for this family. Can you imagine going to sleep at night with this boy in the house? I don't think I'd be sleeping. I'd be watching, or at least with one eye open. That would spook you. And the father knows what's going on here. So this is why he says this. If you can do anything, there's the description here of the disciples' inability to act. These guys have failed to act. And so this guy is beginning to question Jesus. If you can do anything, let me show you the word that he used of Jesus. This just blows my mind. Knowing who Jesus is. Dunamai. The word I showed you before was dunamus, meaning explosive power. This is what dunamai means. Be possible, be of power to resist a force. Jesus do you have the dunamai to resist this force? If it's possible, do you have the power? This guy's skeptical and he's confused. So what does he do? He questions the capacity of Jesus to save. He's produced a skeptic here. Take pity. This is really, really touching. This father has transferred this over to himself, take pity on us. Now I want you to notice something that's going on here. All this time that this conversation is taking place, this child is rolling around on the ground, writhing. And Jesus allows time for these individuals to really process, do I really believe what I say I really believe? Do I really own it? Because look at what happens next with this response. Specifically, he cries out, If you can do anything. And Jesus responds, and Jesus said to him in verse 23, If you can, all things are possible to him who believes. It's like a pair of brackets the way it's written in Greek. Jesus picked up his own words and presented them right back to him in a picture frame. If you can, do you not understand who you're speaking to? If you can, all things are possible to him who believes. So the real question here is not Jesus' ability to heal, is it? It's in the capacity of this individual to really trust God, to do what only God can do. That's the real question going on here. And here's the beauty of it. God will meet us more than halfway if we're willing to believe. If we're really willing to go after him, he comes more than halfway past the line. Says, if you believe, you can do anything. All things are possible to him who believes. It's the essential element of faith. And here's the problem. It requires us to have faith in the one who can strengthen our faith when our faith is weak. That's the complication that skeptics have. So Jesus' statement here is really a promise. The promise is he declares, I can do anything if you can believe. Now this is what the skeptic says. I just need to see to believe. Jesus says, you need to believe in order to see. So verse 24, immediately the boy's father cries out and said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. Skepticism had such a hold on him. His faith is so fragile that he has to actually say to the one who can strengthen his faith, please help me. Now I want you to understand this word that's going on here. Batheno is the word help. If you ever see a child crying, mommy help me. And the mom immediately scans the room or if she's outside looking for the child, where is the child's voice coming from? That's Botheno. Jesus Help me, run to me. That's Bathaneo. That's what this man is saying. Jesus, Bathaneo, run to me, help me. Strengthen my unbelief, make me stronger. This guy owns the presence of unbelief in his life, doesn't he? He really owns it. And it's a beautiful, honest picture of any individual who's skeptical about the things of God, to put themselves in the position in which they will say, help me, botanile, show me, run to me. That's the heart's cry. Let me give you this high definition picture. When someone says, help me, are they not really crying for you as a follower of Christ, as a believer of God to say, How can I help you? How can I surround you? How can I come to you and explain to you the things of God? But instead of doing that, here's what happened here. The disciples engaged in a theological argument with the scribes as opposed to helping the individual who came for relief. There's a debate going on, an argument, and they've neglected this man. So what Jesus saw here was that the work was done. As soon as this man said, Baphaneo, help my unbelief, you see him perform the miracle. Verse 25, When Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. Very interesting. This word that Jesus used here is a command that a military general will use when putting his troops in order. This fallen angel at one time answered to him as the commander of the heavenly host. And Jesus uses a phrase that a soldier would know. I charge you, I command you to come out of him. So he gives him a military order and this very powerful spirit dares to resist Jesus. And the departure Almost took the life of the child. Verse 26 as we wrap this up. After crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions, it came out, and the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said, He is dead. With one final scream, the word is krodzo, he screamed at the top of his lungs. And then he leaves this, and the utter exhaustion left the boy collapsed. Take the next two words in your Bible and circle them. Verse 27, but Jesus. I love every time that occurs in Scripture. But Jesus. But Jesus, in this case, took him by the hand and raised him and he got up. What an amazing scene. Believers in Christ, this is amazing this thing that had captivated this child all his life. Jesus confronts, Jesus speaks, the demon leaves. Jesus commands, the demon departs. What an amazing scene. Jesus rebukes and the demon left. Look at how Luke addresses this as it ends up, Luke 9, 43. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. Everyone was marveling at all that he was doing. Satan is dethroned and the child is healed. No more muteness, no more deafness, no more foaming at the mouth, no more epilepsy. Jesus healed him. Now how does this specifically apply to you and how you can produce skeptics? Look at the very last verse of this story up on the screen. Verse 28. When he came into the house, his disciples began questioning him privately. Why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot come out by anything but what? Prayer. They failed to appropriate the power of God and to bring prayer into the midst of it. In this way, God, what is your will in this circumstance? What do you want to do? That's where prayer always starts. God, what is your will here? That's why it ends this way. Nothing can be accomplished without prayer. This kind cannot come out but by prayer. Here's an unspoken thing here that I'm sure took place. This fallen angel was very quick to discern who had the power and who did not have the power. Very quickly recognized Those disciples, (laughs) I don't have to listen to them. They didn't go to God first. There's no dunamis there. But when Jesus spoke with dunamai, he responded. See, when we don't fully yield to God, the result is the crowd watching, they're confused. What's going on with those believers? They don't really trust and believe what they say they believe. And the one who comes for help and becomes skeptical. That's why Jesus had to say to him, if you believe, you can do all things. It produces skeptics when we fail to appropriate the power of Christ that's available to us. It's quite an indictment, isn't it? When we don't live up to what God calls us to do. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do this morning because this is just, I think, very Convicting. I've been feeling it pressing upon me all week long, saying, God, you have something powerful to say here to your church. Especially, folks, in light of what's coming up this week with people asking questions about Christianity. So before we start thinking about coffee and cinnamon rolls out in the lobby or grabbing our car keys, I'm gonna ask you to do this with me. I'm gonna ask for every eye to close, every head to bow in this room, And here's a question that I have for you. If you feel in your heart, first of all, that you're just skeptical about the things of God, that perhaps you're just not there, and you really are wondering whether or not this stuff that everybody else says they believe is really real, I'm going to invite you to do one very simple thing, which is just raise your hand, because I'm going to pray for you right where you're at, if you want to raise your hand, I will pray for you right now just to help you work through this issue of skepticism. I see those hands. Thank you very much. Now, for believers in this room, you're not necessarily skeptical about the things of God, but you feel yourself that perhaps you have not measured up to the things God has called you to do, And so therefore, you feel like you need a fresh, new beginning. What we've done this morning is we've identified six individuals who will pray with you after the service if you would like that. So what I would like to invite you to do right now is just pray with me where you're sitting. And when I close in prayer, if you feel that you would like myself or one of these six individuals to pray with you, I'm gonna invite you just to walk up to the front after the service and we'll connect together, okay? So let's pray together first. Father, we've looked at a really hard text this morning. A man who could have easily been just driven away from you out of utter disappointment over the things that took place in his life. But fortunately, you were there and for the sake of Jesus, you stepped in, Father. And you rescued and you healed. And you took away what would have been skepticism, but out of this, Father, we learned a great lesson. So for my brothers and sisters in this room, first of all, who name the name of Christ, God, I pray for boldness on their behalf and for this genuine desire that they have to make a whole new beginning with you. God, give them the courage to come up here afterwards so that we can pray with them. But Father, for those individuals in this room who raised their hand and said, they're just not there yet. I lift them up specifically to you. I ask, Father, that graciously and tenderly you would prod them in their heart and allow them to be bold enough to connect with myself or one of these other individuals up front so that we can help them work through this. Father, I ask this in such a way that you don't allow us to leave this room unless we've dealt with these issues that we've recognized this morning because your spirit has indeed been at work here. Your conscience has been working upon our conscience, your Holy Spirit. So Father, I'm asking right now that you would use your Holy Spirit to move these individuals to take that next step and say, I want, a new mo- I want to know more. God, I'm asking this in the name of Jesus, our Savior, and soon coming King, Amen.